0: Welcome back to the PFC podcast, the views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different. It was recorded live at the JSON-TC during the July 21st Joint Trauma System teleconference. This time we have Dr. Doug Powell, he's going to be talking about providing critical care in austere environments, and he's been doing this for about two years with us. He's proctored and instructed more prolonged field care and other austere medical exercises than anyone else I know, and he's now a battalion surgeon in a special forces group. He's got a pretty good idea of what's required of a special operations medic. All of the downloads he talks about today are available for free at prolongedfieldcare.org. And now, on to the podcast. Thank you. I'm giving my talk today from the Joint Special Operations uh, Medical Training Center here at Fort Bragg, which is a regular uh, participant in these conferences, and I can't emphasize enough how much these conferences contribute to the the training of our special operations medic. Before getting into a discussion of how we teach austere critical care monitoring and management, I'd like to uh, briefly review the strategic and operating concepts that uh, are context that are driving these initiatives and that can help uh, explain why they're so important in current and future special operations uh, medical initiatives. Pretty much every strategic document in Army Special Operations and now the the new U.S. Army operating concept predicts that we're going to be sending smaller and smaller teams to more and more places in the the future. This is sometimes referred to as gray zone conflict. There are going to be some publications coming out about the medical implications of gray conflict. And for the purposes of this talk, this really has three implications. First off, it's impossible, both from a manning standpoint and really a financial standpoint, for AMED health support to put assets in support of every mission, just because there's so many, they're so dispersed. And the casualty rate is, is very low density. So the implication of that is that more responsibility is going to fall on soft medical providers to be able to provide initial critical care resuscitation and stabilization. And really, the point of impact is going to be the special operations medic, because they'll be, in almost every case, uh, the only person within that golden hour to assess and stabilize their patients. And then finally, as this conference today is really a great example of, in these operating environments, penetrating trauma may not be the leading cause of critical illness and injury. Uh, We're seeing blunt force trauma be much more prevalent in uh, medical conditions such as infection and environment. This is really the slide that we use to brief commanders in in our community of the implications of changing from an operating environment in which we had very mature uh, medical assets in place to more of an immature medical environment. You can see we've overlaid the United States with Africa. This could also apply in other environments where we operate, such as islands in the Pacific uh, and other dispersed environments where it's just not possible to get critical care assets and, and critical care surgery assets shown in green in anywhere near the one to two hour time frame or to the casualty uh, as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's most likely we're looking at definitive care not being available for one to several days. For Long Field Care Working Group, with whom it's been a privilege to work for over two years, Uh, has worked closely with our soft uh, medical allies uh, in NATO and other countries and come up with this as a definition for prolonged field care. The one point I'd like to make is that these recommendations and these techniques and practices are really aimed at independent duty medics. And while the Army operating concept does forecast a need to develop austere care capabilities, conventional forces, uh, medical assets, nothing in our recommendations and nothing in my talk today is is, uh, really applicable uh, to the conventional forces medic. It's really independent medical provider or credential provider and higher. We talk about four stages of prolonged field care. It's important to note that these are not linear, and uh, not all may, may be in play in any particular casualty or any particular operating environment, but it is important that we, we prepare to provide stabilization and resuscitation of critically ill and injured patients at every level because you never know which one you're going to run into in your environment. A couple points about this. We have a line of communication that I'll get to uh, on a future slide that's called ICU in a Rucksack. That was kind of what this talk was built when Colonel Sean Keenan and uh, And Colonel Shackelford invited me to come and participate here. I want to clarify that it's really possible to provide ICU level diagnostics and monitoring in a rucksack, but when you get into the management, it's not really possible because you're going to exhaust your supplies pretty quickly. So, at that point, we really should be transitioning to one of these stages where you can cache supplies or another aspect of prolonged field care, uh, rely on some improvised techniques. Uh, which we also train. Just over a year ago, uh, the USASOC Medical Training Group uh, ran a prolonged field care assessment exercise here at Fort Bragg. And this was really designed to answer the question, do we need to refresh prolonged field care skills in our existing 18 Delta, in our ex- existing special forces medics? Because, of course, you know, the guys at the schoolhouse will say, well, they've all been trained on that. Of the nearly 400 critical tasks that an 18 Delta has to be trained on and accomplish before uh, they graduate, there's a, a large number of them that perla- pertain to prolonged field care. But what our suspicion was and our observation was that after 10 years of um, sort of adrenaline driven, very trauma centric care in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we're pretty much stabilizing at the point of injury and handing off uh, to medicine and uh, and having decomposition have been either en route or at the cash or the FST is that these skills had not been sustained. And so we invited teams of medics from uh, five of the special forces groups, ran them through two lanes of about 18 hours each, one that was more surgery focused, one that was more ICU uh, critical care stabilization or resuscitation focused. And we picked about 40 of these critical tasks uh, that we were going to assess, some being more C and some being more prolonged field care oriented. And consistently at the bottom in the list of a self-administered survey, both before and after the exercise, the prolonged field care tasks ranked as the ones that the medic had the least confidence in applying. And this was also something that was eye-opening for command in terms of getting their awareness of the importance of training dollars, but really more importantly, time, because time is the most precious commodity in our community, uh, set aside and dedicated to prolonged field care training. Before I get into the hows and the whats of how we train critical care in austere environments, I start all of these trainings by explaining the why of patients uh, can decompensate, and sort of the why of the golden hour. And the physiologic context is systemic inflammatory response as it leads uh, or can lead to circulatory shock and take takes some time when we're training the medics to explain that this r- potential really exists with any significant mechanism of illness or injury. We saw it in our heat casualty patient today. We see it in infected patients. One In a bigger lecture that I give, the, the example of the vitals that we trend is actually a heat casualty that occurred here at Port Bragg, and make the point that the only tool that we have to improve outcomes in this, in the progression to circulatory shock is early recognition, uh, that the patient's decompensating so we can jump on them with treatment of the underlying cause and, and appropriate resuscitation. So here's the famous ICU in Iraq, which a slide uh, that I gave at SAMHSA in a, in a talk this year and It points to the fact the most important information that we use to make decisions about patient care and critical care setting uh, can be obtained from vital signs, uh, mental status, neurologic status, pain status, and with the addition of just a Foley catheter to give us one window into organ perfusion. And and the most important thing in this slide is actually sitting underneath all that, and that's a way to record all of these trends so we can monitor them and react to them if we spot decomposition compensation. This is an example of a uh, flow sheet that we make available to the medics. They uh, use it here in the schoolhouse. It was developed by one of our uh, fantastic instructors, Sergeant First Cast Paul Los, and is one of the uh, plank holders in the Prolonged Field Care Working Group. It's available on the Working Group's website, which I'll give at the end of the talk. And this is really probably the first key management skill that we teach for providing austere critical care. Is vital signs trending. The second key skill that we teach is relying on checklists. And it may be too small on the slide, but like I said, you can get a copy of this. It's a PDF file. We have a checklist on the right that the medics can follow and are encouraged to follow when they get into stress decision-making and fatigue as these exercises or actual patient care, you know, gets beyond the 24-hour mark. On the back, some of the other skills we, we train are the development of problem lists with plans matched to problems and, uh, and handoffs because there's the potential for handoffs to several handoffs to occur, um, both to non-medical team members as a medic has to rest and to flight crews and other care providers en route. And as we all know, in clinical medicine, handoffs are one of the greatest areas of risks for the patient. Another really important skill that we've developed and that we teach and that we encourage and a capability that we've developed and need to develop further is teleconsultation. And so if we as AMED providers and um, military medicine providers Can't have the patient come to us in our ICU, no matter how far forward we can at least virtually bring the ICU to the patient. And the model that we looked at when we developed teleconsultation for prolonged field care was really the call system that all of us have trained in in hospitals. And when you think about it, uh, we've managed for years and years and years, physicians have managed complicated, unstable patients very well with voice communications, not even with uh, email data to support our voice communications. And that the, the, the key aspects of this are to have the right people to talk to at the other end of the line to help us manage our patients and be able to present data that helps them help us. And that's, that's being able to collect trends and present trends. In October of last year, we rolled out a pilot project called the Virtual Critical Care Consultation Line or the VC3 line uh, in collaboration with intensive care docs at the ISR burn unit. This is an unsecure voice connection directly to an on-call staff intensivist with a dedicated email address where the medics could send data, specifically snapshots of the flow sheet, pictures of wounds, and pictures of what we call capabilities, which I'll get to in a minute. We tested this with almost 100 training calls and exercises all across the SOF community. Uh, We refined it and we've actually employed it in the um, SOC Africa uh, area of responsibility and have had to this date at least five real-world calls with improved outcomes in all of them. And we're going to publish uh, some case reports in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine uh, later this year. The big issue for this, for us, uh, as a community is to sustain this. It's really been kind of an ad hoc project. You, you know, there's not really a TDA position for a VC3 doc on anybody's meds and roster, but somehow get uh, docs to participate and get uh, the software to call forward to docs. So, we can sustain this and expand it to all special operations AORs and all branches of the military with special operations missions that are ongoing. As I said, one of the key parts of good teleconsultation is being able to present a patient, and we work pretty carefully and extensively on developing a script. Uh, I have blacked out the um, actual contact numbers to VC3 on this more open source format, but uh, this generic flow sheet is also available on the working group website. One of the key capabilities or key things that the medics asked for was a way to convey to the doc on the end of the phone what their capabilities are where they're treating their patient because they they really were concerned that hospital-based physicians for information that they just didn't have the capability to provide and so the bottom right is what we call the capabilities worksheet the medic can very quickly fill out what they have in the way of meds resuscitation fluids airway capabilities uh, procedural capabilities etc email this off to the doc so they can form start to form a little bit of a picture of uh, the environment in which the casualty is being treated when they answer the call. This isn't really a hospital critical care capability, but it's one that's developed as we pretty much from the first exercise we ran in the fall of 2014, we pushed medics and uh, teams To the point of exhausting their supplies and really from the very first exercise some great improvisational techniques came forward the one that came out of that exercise was one of the medics asking hey if i'm out of iv fluids can i resuscitate my patient you know either orally or using rectal fluids because i i have water available and i can sterilize the water or i can boil the water i just am out of iv fluids and that led us to look in the literature, and we've actually found case reports of rectal fluid resuscitation of hemorrhagic shock patients and pretty extensive body of literature that I cite in one of the sources at the end of this uh, presentation on oral and enteral resuscitations of burn patients that really kind of dates from the Cold War era looking at um, nuclear mass casualty events. So that that was a pretty helpful improvisation. We teach those techniques all the time. You can see in the lower left-hand corner, a simulated burn patient uh, sipping rehydration fluid through a straw made from cut down IV tubing as he's resuscitated and exercised. Some of the other things have been a little bit more innovative. On the right, there's an improvised condom catheter that, uh, actually did hold water. We get right up to the line, but we don't actually put them on our, our simulated patients. Um, but that was ginned up by one of our teams and it actually worked. It's a, it's a exam glove connected by IV tubing and taped to an, I, an empty IV bag. At the top is an improvised bag mask that It uses a uh, pool toy inflator uh, hooked up to the top of a soda can, uh, sealed with tape and padded. And then in the bottom center is an improvised three-jar chest tube atrium uh, that one of our surgical colleagues, uh, Dr. Dave Harden, uh, who's currently a Baylor in Dallas, showed us based on his uh, extensive humanitarian surgical experience in Africa. Uh, and then finally, uh, last but not certainly not least in, in terms of important ICU techniques that we're teaching is nursing care because we will have these patients for long enough for complications to develop. And as we all know, the complications can often be as serious or potentially more serious than the initial insult itself. I'm gonna wrap up on the last two slides by talking about how uh, we can train osteocritical care, some opportunities uh, for the military medical community to get involved with this with the special operations medical community. And on the last slide then some techniques that I found to be really helpful for optimizing the clinical ICU experience for osteocritical care if you do have a special forces medic who's rotating in in your ICU. So the first thing I'll say is that with an, more of an emphasis on critical care and prolonged field care training, and really the most important thing is to get into ICUs and see sick patients because there's nothing like seeing decompensation firsthand and learning about it from a trained physician and a trained nurse to understand, uh, to recognize it when you have it facing you in an austere location. So medical proficiency training is something that all of uh, the 18 deltas and in independent duty corpsmen have to go through uh, two weeks in a hospital environment every two years. One of the big gaps that we're identifying is we, we probably could use some critical care and critical surgery training for our, our uh, physician and physician assistant providers, because many of them come from uh, backgrounds where they're not managing complicated patients. And this would be an opportunity that we could put a battalion surgeon, his PA and senior medic together in an ICU for a week training with trauma surgeons, acute care surgeons, intensivists to really uh, get some valuable uh, training in the management of unstable patients. At unit level, we have both non-trauma modules where we're giving, you know, hands-on demonstration or, or talks, and here's a great opportunity for guest speakers to come in and and contribute to the education of our medics at pretty much any site that has a special operations unit. There there should be that opportunity, and your point of contact should be the the group surgeon or the squadron surgeon. And then field exercises, and like I said, what we're finding to be the most useful model is uh developing first off realistic cases and we actually extrapolate f- from some of these cases in this conference to, to create scenarios that we train on uh, on these exercises. So that's that's been one of the contributions of this conference to our training. Having good mentors, people who t- take care of complicated patients for a business is really helpful. There's value in having expert medics. There's value about having expert medic trainers, but all of the guys have said that they really value the contributions of the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, critical care providers who come out uh, and help mentor the lanes. We wanna make this austere. This is one of the forcing functions for uh, um, improvisation to make them run out of things and come up with a plan, um, both for conserving the assets that they have prioritizing who gets the, the material that they have, and then for improvising uh, when they run out. And we found that we can't really provide a good prolonged field care training experience or osteocritical care experience in an exercise lasting less than 24 hours. A couple of the important things that happen at this point is, number one, the medic gets so tired that he has to take he has to put his head down. And so that forces a handoff to non-medical team members uh and you know if then wake criteria, which is an important thing to have. And it also forces stress decision making uh and fatigue decision making. And all of us who've been through fellowship and had 24 hour and 30 hour calls, you know, know that as as tough as that was, it definitely contributed to our development uh, as as providers. And then the last aspect of um, good field training is to have multiple movements. Number one, to simulate, to, to simulate a realistic uh, exfil from many of our operating environments. And number two, to kind of test their ability to provide cares on all the different ruck, truck, house, plane platforms that we talked about earlier. And pretty much every event now we try to integrate some sort of air um, fixed wing or our rotary wing. I'll finish up with really the realization that brought me to prolonged field care in the first place. As I came to WOMAC as a new intensive care doc, and had a couple of um, students in black sweats with this funny crest on them uh, show up in the ICU, and I asked them what they who they were, and they said, "Well, we're 18 Delta students, sir, and we're here to learn." And and what I realized. Uh, pretty early on in training the the 18 Delta students in the Q course here at the Schoolhouse, was that critical care is much more of a thought process than it is about equipment and a technique. Uh, and, and I was guilty as a as a young practitioner of what I w- did as a fellow was that when I pre rounded I'd sort of say, Well, I got to go get my numbers, go get your coffee, go get your breakfast, and come meet me for rounds. And then realize pretty quickly that pre-rounding is really where we do all of our thinking. And if thought process is important is what we're trying to teach these guys, then they should be involved as we develop our thought process because rounds is really just a validation and a little bit of tweaking of the thought process. But we really make most of our assessments as we pre-round. So now we have them come in and some guys will just come for pre-rounds. Uh, you know, they'll come in, bring their coffee. We'll review all the patients in the ICU and what we, and a refinement has been. First, we review only the data that they have available at that RUC level. So, you know, mental status, pain, vital signs, urine output. We go through all the patients like that. We triage them from sickest to least sick, most stable, uh, uh, least stable to most stable. We look at trends. Are they getting better, staying the same or getting worse? And only then will we integrate, you know, more advanced data from labs and radiology and consultant studies. And probably eight times out of ten, um, we don't have to revise our initial assessment that we made with rock level diagnostics with these more advanced, and that gives them a lot of confidence that that they can rely on the tools that they have with them to take care of complicated patients. Usually, then we'll round, and you can they can see the benefit of bringing a, a team into the care of uh, complicated patients. We'll have some sort of uh, didactics. If I, if I cover only one topic, you know. Uh, in an academic lecture, I'll talk about the systemic inflammatory response and circulatory shock. And then in the afternoon, pair them up with one of our ICU nurses to go through the work of caring for a critically ill patient, rolling every two hours, you know, doing Foley care, doing IV care, doing patient hygiene. So they can number one learn some techniques, and number two, you know, see how exhausting it can be. And this is a perfect thing for them to hand off to their teammates when they're, they're in caring for a patient. Is you know, anybody can be taught. Um, to roll a patient safely and keep them clean. And that's one of the tasks that we encourage them to delegate uh, if they're in a real-world prolonged field care environment. I'll just finish with some of my favorite quotes from mentors in the prolonged field care realm. The first, if you can't bring the patient back, you have to cap- push the capability forward. And that's really what we're all about in a prolonged field care working group and with the topics I've talked about here. Sergeant Major, recently retired Mike Hetzler, said that, you know, the best Austere care is great clinical care as applied as close as possible to hospital standards. You know, we improvise only when we need to. And what we try to encourage is high standard hospital level critical care and deviate that only if we have to and and not make, you know, improvising and and, um, winging it a default. And then the the last thing is from my new commander um, who said, you know, critical thinking is a key skill for all special operations forces. And one of the things he likes about the medical training that we're doing is that we teach critical thinking and critical thinking is not something that he can surge. You can't send somebody to a class to teach them to critical think. It really is a a process that needs to be developed. And and so he's seen benefit in medical training, not just for risk reduction, but for teaching our guys to be better thinkers. And with that, I'll end, and the Prolonged Field Care Working Group website is on this slide. I have any questions in the last page, there's some resources for journal articles that we refer to when we teach, and then some Prolonged Field Care specific clinical practice guidelines that we're working on with the ISR that shall be published this year. Thank you very much. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.